rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode number 16 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie B. Meyer, and I guess we're just going to get right into things here real quick. First off, we'll start with a... Well, first I have a comment, uh, which was posted uh, right after I recorded last episode. So, unfortunately, I couldn't get it in the last episode. But uh, Anthony Rooney writes in response to episode 14, which is the one I did with uh, Michael Bradley of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Uh, he writes, I don't know about anybody else. But I was quite surprised to see another story featuring a Superman doppelganger in issue 243, following the showdown with the Sand Superman in issue 242. Not that I'm complaining, I'm a sucker for evil twin stories, but didn't anyone at DC think to hold back on another Superman story with a double for maybe a couple issues at least? What are your thoughts on this? Great show as always. Thanks again for the trip down memory lane. Best wishes from England, Anthony. Anthony, and I believe he also... Uh, posted this on the Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook. Just search for Superman of the Bronze Age, and you can find that. Or you can go to my website, uh, supermanofthebronzeage.blogspot.com, and you can follow it from there. Uh, but getting back to this, um, I thought it was kind of fishy myself. I don't think I mentioned it, and it didn't even occur to me when I was recording it until I got this from Anthony. Uh, but yeah, it is kind of fishy how... Um, one month after dealing with a whole, what, 10 issues or so of, or almost, yeah, about almost 10 issues of having an evil doppelganger, they come in and have another another story with another evil story. But um, this one was handled a little differently, but I can completely see the frustration. Um, I guess it is just bad timing. They basically were just, at this point, from my understanding, the way they were doing the stories actually involved writing the stories, doing the art, whenever they were ready, they were put in the issues. Uh, timing wasn't much of a factor at that point. They didn't have it as scheduled. So I guess just at that point, that was the story that was ready to go. So yeah, it's bad timing, but probably they were kind of stuck because it was either that or probably not have anything to put in Superman, which uh, was a definite no-no back at that time. So, But thanks for writing in, Anthony. Um, next up, we have an email from Steve Rogers, who uh, wrote in, and I think I missed it uh, before also, and I apologize, but here, uh, Steve writes, Hey Charlie, just had a thought on why the whole depowered Superman didn't take. Well, beyond a different version of Superman appearing in every book that he appeared in anyway. When did Superman first start appearing in New God stories? I know they got their start in Jimmy Olsen, but I wonder if Kirby was intending to have Superman cross their paths early on, and having Superman depowered may have conflicted with what Kirby wanted to use in terms of Superman going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Darkseid and company. Eh, just a thought. Could be off-base, but I wonder if it was a factor in resuming, resuming Superman's previous power base. Though I guess this is kind of partially showing why, by the time the crisis was happening, that they needed a complete clean slate with Superman mythos. Just too many in-continuity problems and way too many versions of the same character going around. 
Well, thank you, Steve. Um, Superman started appearing in the New God stories sh uh, shortly before. Let's see, that would have been. Well, the New Gods weren't actually in it, but they. Uh, he started off being used by Jack Kirby and Jimmy Olsen. I believe it was 133, uh, which actually came out in October of 1970, or cover date was October of 1970. So that was just before Denny O'Neill came on to do the depowering on Superman. And uh, during the course of what was going on in Superman, yes, Superman was showing up and having his super duper powers still. So that could very much have played a part in it. I I don't know how much how big of a, a role that played into it, but it does make sense. It could also have something to do with just um, bad communication on the part of DC's editors, uh, because maybe they no one knew the way the editorial ships were done. They may not have even known or was paying attention to what was happening in the main Superman book. Um, so they may have actually did not, you know, not realize that he was going through a depowering. On the other hand, uh, he was also doing the same uh, super duper power stuff over in World's Finest, which was edited and written by the same creative team. So it's hard. There's no telling. Um, now, why that? While that might have been part of the reason why they decided to do a complete clean slate of Crisis. By the time they got to Crisis, uh, Superman was pretty much um, on an even keel across the board by that point. Uh, he may have been played a little bit differently outside of the Superman books. By that point, but by um, sometime, I believe it's in 72, Schwartz takes over action and he continues on any other, uh, pretty much takes over all of the Superman related books. So you get a pretty consistent Superman throughout. Um, Granted, I don't have much uh, uh, experience with him in other comics, but yeah, he pretty much what he was doing. They were pretty much keeping him even by the time they got to the crisis. The reason they did a complete re uh, clean slate on that, well, I'm not quite sure off the top of my head, and I know I've read it, but I can't remember it, and I apologize. Uh, but uh, what a, what that uh, you know they wanted to have something special to do. And they're doing a complete new slate for a lot of the heroes. They did a complete reboot on several of them, Wonder Woman and Batman. They had a new Flash. So they decided to revamp Superman. And the way that they approved it was the way John Byrne decided he was going to do a complete revamp. So that's just the way it happened. Um, if anyone else knows a better reason, please write in and tell me. But So that's basically that. But thank you for writing in, Steve. And uh, that's it for the pre-review section of this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and play a couple promos, and we'll be right back. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the golden age of Superman the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. 
One week, I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Okay. First up, uh, we actually have a Superman book, but the, it was all reprints. Uh, the first issue, uh, and I believe they actually kept the order, the numbering in order this time, although the cover date does show January and most of the other books this month are covered in December, so I'm still not quite sure how they do that with the reprint issues. But uh, the first uh, issue that's of Superman that came out this month was Superman 245. Like I said, the cover shows January 1972. Well, January doesn't really show the year on the cover, but um, the inside indica indicates that it is December, January, and it was released on October 7th. The cover is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and it basically shows Superman standing amidst a black background, holding up what appears to be two signs, and those signs show uh, depictions of a couple of the Superman reprints that are issue that are in the issue, and then the bottom of the page has the heads of other characters who get their own stories in this issue. The stories are as follows: uh, the team of Luther and Brainiac. Uh, which was written by Edmund Hamilton, with art by Kurt Swan and George Klein, which is reprinted from Superman 167 in February of 1964. And this is the story that uh, came about and was inspired uh, infamously by uh, a cover concept that Carrie Bates drew and sent in to Mort Weisinger, current editor of the books at the time. 
uh, that basically showed Luther and Brainiac with Superman in a birdcage. And that became the cover uh, as after it was redrawn by Swan and inked by Klein. And then, of course, uh, became the inspiration for the story. So uh, that's pretty cool that his uh, that's how he got into sort of how he started getting into comics. And now he's the writer of some of the stuff we're actually going to cover this month. Uh, the second story in the book was called The Count, which was a kid eternity story. Uh, no one, uh, there's no information on who wrote the story, but the art was by Mac Raboy, R-A-B-O-Y. So I'm going with Raboy. Uh, and that's reprinted from Kid Eternity number three from autumn 1946. Uh, the third story was The Time Trap, which uh, is an Adam story written by Gardner Fox with art by Gil Keane and Murphy Anderson and reprinted from Adam number three, which has an October-November 1962 cover date. Uh, the next story was The Crowning of Super Chief, featuring, of course, Super Chief, also written by Gardner Fox, with art by Carmine Infantino, and reprinted uh, in, from All-Star Western number 117, uh, which has a February-March 1961 cover date. Uh, the next story was The Adventure of the Shooting Spooks, uh, featuring the what has come to be known as the Earth 2 Airwave, uh, with written, which was written by Marie Boltonoff with art by Harris Levy and Charles Paris. And that's reprinted uh, from Detective Comics number 66 with a cover date of August 1942. The next story was The Super Motorized Menace uh, featuring Hawkman, uh, written by Gardner Fox with art by Murphy Anderson, which was reprinted in this from excuse me, which was reprinted from Mystery in Space, number 89, cover date of February 1964. And the final story was The Prankster's Greatest Rule, written by William Woolfolk, art by Al Plastino, uh, reprinted from Superman, number 87, uh, with a cover date of February 1954. So that was that issue. Uh, following that, a couple, about a week later, uh, less than a week later, on October 12, 1971, we got Superman number 246 with a strictly December 1971 cover date with an interesting cover by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson that basically depicts um, Superman sitting on a fire hydrant as a child pleads with him to stop uh, a some kind of creature from destroying Metropolis, but Superman says that that's just what he's waiting for it to do plus two more super special stories for only 25 cents. It doesn't get much better than this, kids. Uh, the first story in the book, uh, based on the cover, uh, is Danger, Monster at Work, written by Lynn Wien, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. It was edited by Julie Schwartz, and of course Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this story did does get reprinted in Best of DC number 56 from January 1985. In the midst of a torrential storm, Superman dives into the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean to collect some algae and plankton samples from the bottom. After helping a floundering ship back to port, Superman arrives at Star Labs and gives the collected samples to Dr. Farr, who plans to use them to see if they can be used yeah, uh, to turn polluted air into clean air in a similar similar to photosynthesis, changing ox uh, carbon dioxide into oxygen. So Superman switches to Clark Kent and returns to 344 Clinton Street, 
only to hear that there is a meeting taking place in Gordon Lewis's apartment involving the tenants purchasing guns for protection due to the robberies uh, in the neighborhood recently. Clark arrives at the meeting to try to talk his neighbors out of this, saying guns won't solve the problem but only make things worse, but his pleas basically fall on deaf ears. At Star Labs, Dr. Farr's assistant sets up the test samples of algae and notes that uh, an immediate change in one of the samples uh, and places the samples on a shelf and runs off to get the doctor. But in his haste, he failed to place them securely and they end up crashing into the sink below with the samples all running down the drain. In a great transition that switches to Clark washing his hands at a sink, uh, we see Clark reflecting on his failure at the meeting before going out on patrol. Down on the street, we see a couple of gentlemen having a little conversation as one of them bums a light for a cigarette from the other, then has it snatched out of his hand by some kind of protoplasmic ooze reaching up through a hole in the manhole cover. In a different part of the city, we see another slimy tentacle rising from the sewers to attack an old lady, whose scream grabs the attention of Superman's superhearing. He saves her and follows the creature down into the sewer. As Superman continues to follow it, he notices that the creature is actually cleaning the walls and water in the sewer as it moves through. Superman thinks this is a good idea, so prodding it along with some short bursts of super breath, Superman uses the creature to help clean up the sewers until it suddenly stops and starts growing. Bursting up through the street, the creature absorbs a car, which makes Superman realize that if it is cleaning up all pollution, it might also go after people, buildings, and etc., uh, leaving Metropolis nothing but a crater. He realizes that the best way to deal with the plant creature would be to expose it to pure oxygen. But unfortunately, Superman has trouble grabbing the creature due to its oozing abilities. So after a couple of failed attempts, Superman flies it around Superman flies around it at super speed, creating a wind tunnel that basically sucks it up into the ozone ozonosphere which is an electrically charged, oxygen-rich layer about 15 miles above the surface. This basically stuns the creature, which Superman is able to collect in some plastic wrap that he borrows from the factory, and returns it to Star, uh, where they can deal with it. As he returns home to his apartment, Superman spots an ambulance out front. It appears that one of his neighbors, Harold Jenkins, was shot and is bleeding badly, so Superman flies him to the hospital. Later, he returns to the apartments again as Clark and informs the neighbors that are standing outside that Jenkins will be okay. And at that point, we also learn that Mr. Slaughter, one of Clark's neighbors, uh, mistook Jenkins for a prowler and shot him. And this basically shows why Clark was trying to talk everyone out of getting guns in the first place. And that basically is the end of the story. Now, overall... Um, they had a couple problems with the story. Uh, no, uh, for one, on one hand, I like how they had a couple different messages in the story without being as heavy-handed as some other stories have been. We did see the pollution thing with the algae monster, so that's. I mean, but it didn't really sit there and say how we have to clean up everything. Uh, so, but it was involving the pollution. The other part was the gun thing, which is a little more heavy-handed, but really showed up for like one page near the beginning and another page at the end. So it was a rather quick thing. It didn't take away from any of the stories they were telling. So I kind of like how they handled that. Um, one of the questions I have, though, is um, 
at the beginning of the story, Superman is at the Marianas Trench, which is in the Pacific Ocean. And Superman returns the boat to the Metropolis dockyards. But when he uh, first spots it, he's coming up out of the trench, which means either he flew for a while under the water, all the way over to the other side of the country, or he actually took a boat from the Pacific Ocean and took it to Metropolis to dock on the East Coast. And at that point also, Metropolis seems to be under the same storm because it's still a torrential rainstorm there. So I guess my question is, at this point, do they really know where Metropolis is? Because this seems to indicate it could be a West Coast city, but it's traditionally been pointed out as an East Coast city. That could just be a small problem. Um, on page nine, I really like that. Uh, we actually saw some cool uh, details on this page. Uh, we saw, like I said, this is where the transition is where Clark's washing his hands. Uh, when he's washing his hands, it's really cool. He's, uh, first time I've noticed this uh, pre-burn, um, Clark has pulled up his shirt sleeves to wash his hands. Uh, we not only see the blue Superman costume underneath it, but he's also pulled those sleeves up a little bit and we see he's got hairy arms. Don't normally see Superman without his costume on covering his arms and chest and everything. So it was rather interesting to see this. Um, and then they even added the little detail while he's thinking to himself. Uh, we see him actually dry his hands off on a towel before heading out on patrol. And I just thought it was really cool. I mean, you, you know he's got to be doing this, but you never actually see, especially this era of Superman, just doing something simple like washing his hands and drying them off. I just thought that was really cool. Um, page 10, uh, I noticed in the background there's a sign for Schwartz Deli. A nice nod to the editor. But um, the way the panel layout is, it also services as an arrow to help figure out which panel to read next. Basically, uh, the way Swan drew it is we have two small panels on the left side followed by a rather long panel on the right side and another one at the or another one or two at the bottom of the page. So basically what the Schwartz Deli sign does is points to that you need to read the one the uh, that from the first panel you need to read the run under it first before you go to the right in order to follow the continuity of the story. While I'm not sure he would he should have actually had to use that, I do like the way uh, Swan put that in there to make it a little easier than just putting an arrow. It makes a lot of sense, and it's one of those things that kind of makes it subliminal. Overall, though, I thought this was a good story. Uh, the art was great. The rainstorm added a layer of atmosphere to the pencils and inks, and uh, at this point, Anderson's inks are really starting to gel well with Swan's pencils. And I liked on the first page, uh, we actually saw the rain was... Um, they actually had the logo and Superman logo and the title of the story were on the front page, and the rain's actually not only hitting them, but the water is dripping off. So it looked, it just, it brought it, brought it into the story. It looked really cool, and I really liked that. Um, also, uh, this issue marks the first appearance of Star Labs, uh, which play, definitely plays a part, uh, a big part post crisis, but does come back to play a big part pre-crisis so we're, this is not the last or only we will see of Star Labs and uh, we also uh, get a first mention of three uh, three of his neighbors that actually do uh, will make uh, reappearances it's still going to be a while but um, Mr. Xavier 
which turns out once we beat him is not a bald guy in a, in a wheelchair but um uh, he's a mysterious neighbor that clark has this is his first mention that's actually a slight a small uh plot point or subplot that doesn't get uh that doesn't actually get resolved for another about five years at this point four or five years so i don't know if that was the original intention but they actually play with that a little bit. We do get a few more, a couple times in backups. But we do get a few more teases at Xavier before we see him again. Uh, right around Superman, I want to say it's 296. Right around, right before uh, we get to Superman 300. Um, two other neighbors, we get Mr. Slaughter. We don't get his first name in this story. And we also get Nathan Warbo. Uh, both, uh, and... First of all, these actually show the uh, diversity of, his, of Clark's neighbors these days, uh, because the previous time we've seen his neighbors, of course, they were all white. Mr. Slaughter is a black man, and Nathan Warbo is Native American. And uh, they will come back to, we will see them again in a couple stories uh, right about the end of 73 and beginning of 74 over in action. So keep those in mind. And uh, this is the first appearance of uh, 344 Clinton Street in the Bronze Age. Well, the first mention of it. I don't remember if Clark's been to his apartment before, but they don't actually mention that it's 344 Clinton Street until this issue. Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. But what else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with us now as we explore the fabulous world of Krypton. Presenting Superman. Next story in this issue is Marriage Kryptonian Style, written by Carrie Bates with art by Rick Buckler and Murphy Anderson. And, of course, Superman, again, was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this is, was uh, reprinted in Best of DC number 40, which came out in September of 83. And we start off seeing a video documentary about Matricomp, a computer that basically decides if couples should marry or not. After 76,850 approved marriages, 100% are still happily married. With that kind of success rate, uh, that has led the Science Council to conclude the marriage computer is foolproof. And uh, they make it law for all couples to get approval from Matricomp in order to get married. So it is that we see a young Jorel and Lara Lordan headed to Matricomp, where they submit to the test. The next day, a gentleman named, <laughs> with a Kryptonian name that apparently is not meant to be said, Anner Moo is sent to Laura to inform her that they have that the, uh, the, the young couple have been denied. Anna Mu then escorts Laura 
to find out why, and she is told by the computer that only a one billionth of, a, of Krypton's male population is compatible with her, and suggests that she marry Anner Moo, who is in fact one of those one millionth of a percent. As they leave, Laura tells him that she does not love him, but he uses some kind of mental force to change her mind. Uh, Jor-El pretty much spots this and tries to attack Enermu with a flying kick that pretty much only bounces off and then gets slapped around a bit. Uh, Lara and Enermu walk off, leaving Jor-El bruised and confused, but he thinks he remembers seeing him before, so he heads off to do some research. Later, Jor-El confronts Matricomp, revealing that Enermu is an exact double of Tok-Ra, the second, Matricomp's creator. Matricomp's complex circuitry actually has allowed him to, or allowed it to feel love, and it has fallen in love with Lara. So it created inner room to experience that love with Lara. Take that as you will. Matricomp uh, attempts to kill Jorel with some electricity, but Jorel knew that that was Matricomp's only available offensive tactic and came prepared with some special insulation. Thus, knowing that its defeat means that Matricomp's programming will be altered to remove its capacity for love, leaving its existence to be meaningless, Matricomp self-destructs. Fortunately, Jorel escapes, and then makes his way to Lara's, to see that Anarmu has dropped dead. Jorel explains everything to Lara, and reveals that Anar was an android. Thus, free-choice marriages were once again permitted on Krypton, thanks to Jorel and Lara. Now, overall, this was a pretty interesting story, uh, but uh, the first page of the, that documentary I mentioned is actually being watched by a marriage counselor who has basically had his livelihood uh, ruined by Matricomp, uh, but we don't have any mention or sight of him again for the rest of the issue, or the story anyway. So, I don't know, maybe he'll come back, but I don't. It was kind of pointless to have them there. Um, the art, uh, we do see a few glimpses of what Buckler does, but for the most part, Anderson's inks just totally overpowered the pencils here, and it basically looks like uh, an Anderson artwork. Uh, granted, he may not have used some of the poses or anything, but it basically just looks like Anderson here. I don't know. Um, maybe it was the pencils were very sketchy. I'm, I'm not sure how that worked out, but you don't see much of Buckler here. Um, and once again, the last panel mentions how Jorel and Lara are Superman's parents, in case anyone forgets. And that's it for that. Uh, there, there was one more story in this issue, um, entitled There Is No Superman, written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Ira Yarbrough, and it was either inked by Stan Kane or Ira Yarbrough himself. Uh, but we don't, I don't, I can't find confirmation of that. Uh, the two sources I found this information from, uh, have it either way. One said Stan K, the other said Ira Yarbrough. Um, however, that story was reprinted from Superman number 40 with a cover date of May, June, 1946. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com.
boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Here they are, together again for the first time. The mighty man of tomorrow, Superman. And the mystical master of magic, Dr. Fate. World's Finest, number 208, with a cover date of September 1971. Uh, it was actually released on October 19, 1971, with a really cool-looking Neil Adams cover, although Superman's face looks a little um, sketchy on this. Um, basically, we see on this cover, we see a whole bunch of contraptions used to allow Superman to pull on the Earth, it looks like, with Dr. Fate standing on it, which probably isn't helping, and Superman is straining with apparently strained with all his might, or he's really trying to poop. But it looks really cool. The contraption they use is really awesome. And it's actually kind of sad uh, that we see it this way on the cover, because when we see a similar depiction on the first on the first place, that first page, splash page, unfortunately the artist uh, makes basically makes it look like uh, Superman is just inking on some chains hooked onto the uh, one of the continents, and it just doesn't look quite as dynamic. But anyway, the title of the story is The Peril of the, Pan yeah. Peril of the Planet Smashers. It was written by Lynn Wing, with art by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella. The editor is Julie Schwartz, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. This book has been reprinted in Best of DC, number 20, which has a January 1982 cover date. So, we begin in the town of Salem on Earth 2, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, as Dr. Fate foils the robbery of a thermal ray by some hoodlums. He gets an emergency page and quickly flies off to the Weatherby Free Clinic, where he works as one of the nation's top surgeons, Dr. Kent Nelson. He's quickly rushed into an operating room to find that this patient is an alien creature who had apparently been floating above the city and was clipped by a low-flying plane. The creature then begins sending out a telepathic message uh, that only Dr. Fate can hear, that only Dr. Nelson can hear, uh, stating that the Earth is doomed. Meanwhile, on Earth-1, or actually several miles above Earth-1, we see Superman sitting on a satellite out in space reflecting on the events of last month's issue and how he is still vulnerable to magic. He goes to see Zatanna to see if there is a cure for this vulnerability, but she's unable to help because to do so would actually involve figuring out how her powers work, which, believe it or not, would actually cause her to lose her powers. Seemingly defeated, Superman suddenly realizes that there is someone who could help him and by using a combination of super speed and super vibrations, which actually I'm pulling out of my butt, they don't actually mention this, and it just looks like he's flying over to it. 
but uh, Superman crosses over to Earth 2 to meet up with Dr. Fate. Superman meets up with Dr. Nelson, who quickly brings the Man of Steel up to speed on his alien patient as they take it to Dr. Fate's tower. Dr. Fate attempts to use magic to telepathically find out the meaning of the alien's threat, but the heroes are forced to quickly stop because it is hurting it. However, they do discover images of Stonehenge and a Mayan temple, so the heroes, after using a spell to put the alien in suspended animation, quickly head out to investigate. Dr. Fate heads out to the Mayan temple, only to see another alien floating above. Dr. Er, Dr. Fate tries speaking to the alien, but it gives him a dirty look before Dr. Fate is attacked by some plant life, which knocks him out with noxious gas, which turns out to be his one weakness, and feeds him to a giant Venus flytrap. Using his powers, Fate bursts out of the plant just in time to see the alien fade away. Out at Stonehenge, Superman sees another alien floating there as well. But before he can do any, or before he can say a word to it, he's attacked by a colossal sand creature. Again? Anyway, uh, quickly losing the battle due to its magical and shape-shifting nature, Superman uses his heat vision to fuse the sand into glass, which he is able to shatter, and yeah, which means he, which allows him to shatter the creature. He then flies to the alien again before being bounced back by an invisible force field. The alien then fades away. Meanwhile, Dr. Fate is headed back to his tower, but comes across some tidal waves. Thinking that this is fortunate, uh, and because there are no coastal cities in their path, he quickly spots a village that should be miles south of its current position. So he's able to erect a magical barrier to protect the village, and then streaks back to Salem, fearing that he has little time. Superman, also trying to get back to the tower, has come across other natural disasters such as volcanoes and earthquakes before finally reaching Fate's tower. Inside, Dr. Fate uses his crystal orb to reveal that all of the, these disasters are being caused by the continents slowly being drawn together. Again, trying to use magic to pull info from the alien, the heroes learn that the aliens are an ancient race, somehow older than space and time itself, and they have been seeking the true liberation of the mind and discovered that smashing Earth's continents together would create the ultimate energy, giving them powers beyond all imagining. Now, knowing what they must do, the heroes head out to the focal point of the catastrophe, the Lost Valley of Ur. Upon reaching the valley, they spot the aliens from before, this time joined with the alien from the tower who somehow got there first, and they're inside a large glowing orb. Our heroes attempt to attack the orb, but are easily repelled. Fate then gets the idea to combine their powers, so summoning his crystal orb from his tower, Fate transfers his powers to Superman, and again Superman goes on the offensive. This time, the aliens are unable to repel the magical Man of Steel, and he's able to give the globe a super punch, which actually causes the aliens' powers to backfire, which causes an explosion that wipes them out. After returning the magical powers to Dr. Fate, um... Dr. Fate then creates a myst some mystical chains which counteract the ma uh, alien's magic and allows Superman to pull the continents back to their rightful places. This whole adventure causes Superman to rethink wanting to be invulnerable to magic. After all, had he been invulnerable to magic, the aliens would not have been able to be defeated and the Earth would have ended up being destroyed. The story ends with Superman realizing that humility is good, even for a Superman. Now, like I said, beside the fact that the uh, use of the chains does not look nearly as cool when drawn by Dick Dillon, 
as it does by Neil Adams. Um, this was a pretty good story. Uh, some of the negatives I have, um, I still don't, I really don't believe that the continents could have actually been moved like that without even worse consequences to the planet. But basically this is comic book physics, so I guess it could work. Uh, Superman basically killed the aliens in this issue. And after reading that note from Steve Rogers earlier, we get another sand creature now. So I'm, I don't know, anyone else noticing the, the repeat stuff? And um, like I said, there was Dick Dillon's interpretation of the chains. The positives, though, are that this was a fun story. And while not great, the art does look rather good and does do a good job of telling the story. And we actually have another nod to continuity because this actually reflects on events from last issue. So I'm glad Lynn Ween brought that to the table. So thank you. Um, we do have, there were two more stories reprinted in this issue. The first is the inside story of Robot Man, featuring Robot Man from uh, Detective Comics 138, cover dated 1948, with, uh, written by Otto Bender, with art by Jimmy Thompson. Uh, and then uh, the other title is The Spectacular Crimes, uh, written by John Broom, with art by Carmine Infantino and Frank uh, Giacoa. Uh, and that's reprinted from Flash Comics number 96, cover dated June 1948. So, and a few more uh, promos, and we'll go to the next issue. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more superman homepage.com superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in action comics magazine okay action comics number 407 cover dated december 1971 with an on sale date of october 28th uh, of october 28 1971 and this one also features a cover by kurt swan and murphy anderson and on this one we see Clark Kent apparently in a cage uh, while behind him we see some people either inside the fortress or outside the door uh, with one of them with one of these with one man about to shoot two others um, and I don't know who and we don't see who the apparent killer is going to be but it means but apparently according to the cover it looks like Clark's going to have to give up his secret identity in any event, the first story in the issue is called The Fiend in the Fortress of Solitude, written by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor this time is Murray Boltonoff. And, of course, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. This story has not been reprinted. Up in the Arctic, a small plane suddenly finds itself in trouble when the engine conks out. The pilot attempts to make the best landing possible using a massive snowdrift as a cushion and comes to a stop right in front of Superman's Fortress of Solitude, with the sudden stop forcing the pilot to hit his head on the console, knocking him out. Superman, who just so happens to be at his fortress at the time, sees the pilot and flies him down to a hospital in Alaska, where the pilot reveals, via thought balloon, that he knocked himself out on purpose 
memorized the position of the fortress and plans for returning. Two days later, Clark is in his office admiring a birthday gift that uh, he will be presenting Perry White when he suddenly remembers that where he has seen the pilot before. He uses his telescopic vision to see the police file on Michael King Andrews. And at that moment, uh, we see that Andrews has actually left the hospital and has just stolen a plane from a nearby airfield. Uh, then we see that he has sent a letter to his son, Michael, at an East Coast reform school that is recruit and recruits him for a big job. Since the school is on the honor system, there are no guards or gates, and so it is easy for Michael to escape and make his way to Andrew's apartment in Metropolis, where Andrew also recruits a man named Sleazer. Another two days later, at an, another abandoned airfield, I'm guessing this one's near Metropolis though, um, we see Andrews and Sleazer talking about the job as Michael drives up with his hostage in the trunk of, a, of the car that will prevent Superman from interfering with the job. This hostage? Clark Kent. As Clark exits the trunk, his x-ray vision reveals that Sleazer is a disguise being worn by someone who means big trouble. Everyone loads up on the plane and Andrews administers knockout gas, similar to Batman's bat sleep from the 60s show, so that the secret location of the fortress stays a secret. Upon reaching the fortress, Sleazer uses his technological know-how to get through Superman's defenses, and they're able to enter. And Clark gets locked up in an empty cage with Michael on guard as Sleazer and Andrews head to the trophy room. Clark soon spots an emergency in the Sahara on his disaster monitor, so he uses super ventriloquism, yay, to make it sound like Andrews is calling for his son. This allows Clark to change to Superman and slip out, but he only has about 10 seconds to leave, save the day, and get back. Uh, while Superman's busy capping off an acid geyser in Egypt, Andrews uh, uses Superman's shrieking ray to shrink all of Superman's trophies uh, so that he can easily carry them in a small bag. When Michael shows up to see what his dad wanted, Andrews sends him back to watch Kent. Uh, when Michael returns, he sees that Clark is still in the cage. The Clark spots another emergency, so he whistles at an ultrasonic frequency that which causes, causes a bit of a cave-in, which Michael escapes from, but it separates him from Clark, and Clark is now out of sight. He uses that time to tunnel his way out of the fortress, and while he's busy going off to save a sub in the Gulf of Mexico that's been tangled up in some monstrous seaweed, Michael is desperately trying to save Clark. He's shocked when Andrew shows up, but tells him that he was planning to kill Clark anyway, so don't, wor don't worry about him. But before he can say much, Sleazer appears and reveals that he's actually Lex Luthor, and Andrews and his son have outlived their usefulness, which was to get him into the fortress. And he reveals that he used them to get access well, to the fortress, yeah. So he could plant a bomb to wipe out the Man of Steel. Andrews refuses to go quietly and shoots at Luther, but misses. Unfortunately, Luther's aim is a little bit better, and he kills Andrews. Uh, he's about to kill Michael when Superman suddenly busts in through the cave, caved-in rock and quickly knocks out Luther. He then quickly searches the fortress for the bomb and finds it attached to the fortress door. And for a reason I'm not completely sure of on my re upon reading the book, he uses super breath instead of picking it up and flying it away. 
um, Superman sends it flying out into space as it explodes. And that actually makes him realize that it was an antimatter fusion bomb, which was would be powerful enough to kill even Superman. So after giving Andrews a proper burial near the key that Superman uses for entrance into the fortress, uh, Michael tells Superman that he's going to go straight. We also learn that Luther hates Superman enough that he was actually willing to sacrifice himself, the Andrews, and the entire fortress if it meant killing the Man of Steel. Now for the negatives on this story, I don't know if it was Swan's pencils, Anderson's inks, or a little bit of both, but everyone except for me, for Michael looks really old in this issue, especially Luther after he uh, show, uh, you know, reveals himself. He's got really rooked, uh, rooked, really wrinkled uh, forehead, and his face looks really old, and it looks really weird considering that the rest of his head is like bald and therefore really smooth. So it just looks really messed up. Um, on page one, though, um, Andrew's uh, the picture of Andrew's flying the plane actually looks more like it was drawn by Paul Ryan, uh, who would late who later become become more well-known for some of his work over at Marvel, specifically on Fantastic Four and some Avengers work. And he also, uh, uh, over at DC later on, uh, became pretty good, pretty popular on The Flash and also on some Superman books. But it's weird because I don't think he was drawing comics at this time. And I know he was influenced by, Swan, by Kurt Swan, so it kind of makes sense that it would look similar. But it's also weird that... Um, Andrews doesn't look like that for the whole rest of the story. He looks, he looks more swanish for the rest of the story than in that first panel. But other than that, um, the positives are that this was a pretty fun story. Uh, and the art, while looking a little off, does effectively tell the story. I like the use of colors to show the, uh, so that for, uh, Superman's fortress walls weren't just white but actually had some color to them to give somewhat of a three-dimensional look to them. And um, also, uh, I think, uh, which was pointed out by Steve Rogers a few episodes back in an email I read, this is the first time we actually got one of Superman's main villains showing up in the book. Um, I, this is the first appearance of Lex Luthor in the quote-unquote Bronze Age. And it's finally nice to have one of his means, one of Superman's main supervillains show up. And I'm really glad it finally happened. It doesn't happen too much, uh, but Luther is going to be coming back pretty soon. So keep an eye out for that. Now, before I go on to another part of the story, um, I do want to point out there is a letter in here by a writer named J. David Warner, which made me think of J. David Weir from Superman Forever the Superman Forever radio podcast. But um, he's got a point, he makes a point in this uh, about action number 403, which, if you recall, is a couple episodes ago where um, Superman had the microscopic creature in his bloodstream that was slowly killing him, giving him a fever of some kind. So he tried to do with that super blood transfusion where he got where they got a million gallons of blood from the entire city of Metropolis. It didn't work. But uh, he got that super blood transfusion. And at one point in the story, we see Linda Danvers uh, sitting at Stanhope College crying because she knows that the, uh, when she finds out that the transfusion didn't work because 
She's the only other Tritonian that could have helped. And unfortunately, well, you know, she, her blood type doesn't match Superman's. Well, this guy brings up a good point that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, but he writes, Dear Editor, Action 403 was great, but you'll probably get a sack of letters concerning Linda, Supergirl, Danvers being at Stanhope. While you can surely come up with a dozen plausible excuses, it's interesting to note that it got that it got into print not because of a careless writer or editor, but because it wasn't a blunder that at the time it was printed. The script was completed sometime in February, and and the finished issue was probably sent to the printers about mid-March. But the issue of Adventure Comics, in which Linda graduated and moved to San Francisco, came out the last week of March. How could how could author Carrie Bates or ye old editor suspect they needed to consult Mike Sikowski for two panels? Um, so basically, what that means is that by the time that when they came up with the story, she probably was still at Stanhope. By the time the issue was printed and released, she was no longer at the college. So it is a bit of a continuity error. I apologize for not noticing that before, um, but you know, all I can say is um, I didn't. I don't read the Supergirl stories, so I didn't know. Um, the editor, which I'm not sure if it's E. Nelson Bridwell or actually Martin Boltonoff, but he does respond to that part of the letter. He writes, uh, you're right on the Supergirl reference. It was written and drawn before the gradua graduation story came out. So they'll try to explain it. They just mentioned that he was right. Don't really apologize for it, but yes, it was a blunder. So anyway, uh, the next story uh, is actually... Uh, a second part of the story that was done last issue, The Challenge of the Expanding World, uh, featuring the Atom and the Flash, uh, written by Bob Haney and Alex Toth. This was still reprinted from Brave and the Bold, number 53, from April, May, 1964, and is the second half of that story. As you recall, uh, they took one story that apparently took up a good portion of the issue, if not the whole thing, and broke it into two parts and used uh, the two parts over two issues of action. So that's the second part of the story. And our final story for this week, uh, The Planet of Prey, was written by Carrie Bates with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Again, the editor is Murray Boltonoff. And also, again, uh, Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And, of course, this story also was not reprinted. Uh, on his way back home from a mission in deep space, Superman realizes that he took a wrong turn at Albert, I mean, uh, at, at some twin sons on the way home, but should still be able to get back to Earth without any trouble. Suddenly, he spots a planet right in front of him, uh, so he changes course to go around it, but the planet actually moves itself back into his path. Uh, thinking this is pretty strange, Superman tries a U-turn, but again, the planet gets in his way. Superman decides to investigate the planet, but finds himself surrounded by several vibrating birds, which actually look like vibrating pterodactyls, uh, that try to take him somewhere. But Superman doesn't like to be, you know, yanked around, so he basically fights them off and uses some super breath to blow them away. And as, uh, when he finishes doing that, he looks down to see that the planet has turned itself into a pint-sized replica of the planet Krypton, complete with a Jor-El and Lara, calling him down to see them. Knowing that they're obviously dead, Superman keeps flying, 
but suddenly feels a stabbing sensation in his brain. When he again opens his eyes, I mean, this doesn't knock him out, but he just has to kind of close his eyes because it hurts. Uh, when he opens his eyes again, he sees that the planet has now transformed into a replica of Earth, and that Metropolis is being destroyed by an earthquake, and he does see Lois and Jimmy uh, inside, I guess, the GBS building as it's tumbling. Superman instinctively lands in the ruins, uh, shocked by what he has just seen. But suddenly the rubble quickly changes into some kind of talons, and the gravity around Superman increases, pulling him down into the planet. Unable to pull himself out, Superman tries a trick from the Flash, and tries vibrating out at super speed, but to no avail. However, his vibrating does allow the birds from earlier to communicate with him, and they free him, explaining that they live off the minerals in the atmosphere created uh, by the food the planet consumes. Sounds to me like the planet farts and these guys eat it. Raw. Uh, but anyway, when he asks why they saved him, they explain that the minerals that result from the planet from the planet absorbing any kind of human species actually poisons them. So they didn't really do this to save him, they did it to save themselves. So once he finishes vibrating, Superman flies off, happy to be the cause of their indigestion. Uh, the only negative I really had about this story, uh, which was actually really short, uh, was that Jor-El's outfit is really badly miscolored on 4 and 5. There's no red in it at all. The green is a lighter yellowish green, and there's a lot more yellow than you usually see. It just looks really yuck. Um, I don't know if it was something to do with the planet that, uh, because of limitations of the planet, or that the colorist just didn't know what he or she was doing. But yeah, it's colored wrong. On the other side, uh, the artwork on this story is much better than it was in that lead story. Um, and it was a pretty good story for eight pages. And it was nice to see Superman for once, not fall for the My Parents Are Alive trick, especially after that World's Finest issue where he succumbs to a spanking from Jor-El. Um, also, uh, this, will be this is probably the first time I've noticed it uh, since I started this show. But um, this is not the last time that in a Carrie Bates story, Superman uses a flash trick to uh, save the day. Uh, I think some other writers will use, will use them too, but Superman um, does end up eventually using some more flash tricks to get out of stuff, such as vibrating or moving, you know, super speed things. Um, <clears throat> not that it's a bad thing, but it's cool. And that's it. So I'm going to play a couple more promos, and uh, we'll move on to the Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse for this month. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. 
please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2, starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community, bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang, as told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed. And to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies. And what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time. So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, well, no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Batman. This looks like a 
second job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. Okay. Welcome back. And comics that were on sale in October of 1971, thanks to uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at, at www.dcindexes.com. Uh, first off, we have Forever People number six, um, which apparently involves the first appearance of the Omega effect and uh, looks like uh, it's pretty powerful and wipes you out of existence. We see House of Secrets number 95 featuring the Bride of Death which has a really cool looking Nick Cardi cover. We see Our Army at War number 239. All-Star Western number 9 which has a pretty cool looking cover uh, Brave and the Bold, number 99, which actually, uh, features uh, Batman and the Flash. And while the word balloons seem to indicate that Batman apparently is possessed by some kind of demon, it really looks like Two-Face is wearing the cowl. It's kind of cool looking. And they even have darker coloring, dark, darker shading on half of his face to kind of make it work better. We have Falling in Love, number 127. Um, which features such stories as How to Talk to Boys, Are You Very, Very Young and Never Been Kissed, and Shocking, What Goes On Behind the Scenes. Sing to Me, Baby. Although I think Sing to Me, Baby is actually the story. I don't know. And there's has also shows the winners of the Dream Man contest. We have GI Combat number 151. Um, Featuring the haunted tank on the cover. We have The Witching Hour, number 18, which has another cool Nick Cardi cover, again featuring another bride. Uh, we have Young Romance, number 177, um, which features uh, Are You Too Young to Love? Which I want to say we've actually seen that one before. Uh, go back. We've got House of Mystery, number 197, with another cool-looking, atmospheric Neil Adams cover uh, featuring three kids trying to get away from a ghost ship. Not the kind you see on SpongeBob. We have New Gods, number 6, um, which, show, which features, of course, Orion, Light Ray, and we also has a story involving the Manhunter. Uh, we get... The Sinister House of Secret Love, number two, To Wed the Devil, a graphic novel of gothic terror. We have Star Spangled War Stories, number 160, with another cool-looking Joe Kubert cover. He's really good at these war star stories, but I'm not a fan of his superhero work. Uh, we have <laughs> From Beyond the Unknown, number 14, 
which looks like it involves some gorillas with, I'm sorry, yeah, gorilla, uh, several gorillas keeping a human as a pet. We have Jimmy Olsen, number 141, uh, number 144, which actually features the word far out on the cover. And we see Jimmy and the Newsboys being attacked by what appears to be going from post-crisis continuity and, based on the review I know I wrote uh, at the Superman homepage, the creature of Locke Trevor. So we get to see that again. So that's cool, uh, the pre-crisis version. We get Young Love, number 90, um, featuring something about a blind date. Uh, we have Batman, number 237, uh, featuring The Night of the Reaper, which is another one of those popular, you know, really cool stories that actually does involve Robin in it. Uh, but this time, this issue, instead of having Robin in a solo story, it features a Batman story from the 40s as the, other, as the backup story. Uh, we have Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 87, which actually features the first appearance of Jon Stewart as he becomes the backup Green Lantern for Hal Jordan. That's right. The guy that would later destroy a planet, be the head of Mosaic, then get paralyzed after being a dark star, get his legs back, become a Green Lantern again, and then not only be the Green Lantern, be the main Green Lantern for a little while, but also serve on the Justice League, as well as being in the Justice League animated series, is first introduced here, the Janu December January 1971 issue of Green Lantern. So that's really awesome to me, anyway. We get Heartthrobs number 136, featuring a shagadelic looking couple making out in a dune buggy. Um, what the, this issue does feature a test so that you can find out if you are compatible with men. Um, and then we have Unexpected number 130, which has a cover that makes me think of uh, the Munsters because we have a young lady that looks pretty attractive inviting a young man into the house uh, while her parents are hiding behind a staircase and they look pretty much like they're dead. They're not monsters like on the Adams, like on the monsters, but yeah. Then we have Flash number two twenty or two eleven, featuring the Flash versus Colossal Kate. That's right. Colossal Kate also has. Uh, we also have a Golden Age Flash story as well as a Kid Flash story in that issue. We have Girls Love Stories number one sixty four. And this features uh, another test. What type of man is right for you? And boy, if any guys read those, you're going to be confused. Uh, anyway, uh, Justice League of America number 99, or 95, uh, featuring uh, the Justice League story, The Private War of Johnny Doon, which actually looks kind of cool. We see a pretty, <laughs> to quote some of these comics from back then, a pretty jive-looking uh, dude uh, playing his guitar, looking like, a, at that point, modern rocker. Um, and he's being followed by the Justice League, who are tied up, but seem to be hypnotized by the music that this guy's playing. And this is one of those times where we see a Neil Adams cover inked by Murphy Anderson, which doesn't look totally terrible, but also doesn't look really great either. They are not that good of a combination. 
We have Lois Lane number 117, uh, showing featuring the world being turned upside down, which actually looks really interesting. Um, we have Adventure Comics number 413, which has Supergirl in a full body outfit again. I'm not a fan of that costume either, by the way. Uh, we have Detective Comics number 418, uh, featuring the return of the Creeper, with another cool Neil Adams cover. And we have Superboy number 180, uh, featuring Superboy being the Prince of the Wolfpack. So that looks cool. I'll, well, it looks weird, but it is a cool uh, Kurt Swan, Ricky Anderson cover. And again, it has the rain, which lots of lot, adds a lot of depth and atmosphere to the cup, to the image. So it's really cool. And that's pretty much it for this month. Um, I plan to, I hope uh, the next couple, next few episodes, um, I'm not planning on them being late. There might be a slight delay on them, and I'm going to try not to let that happen. Uh, but my wife is going in for surgery at the end of this week, and so I'm going to be out of town. So I'm going to try to record most of the store, most of the uh, reviews and stuff beforehand, and then throw in the beginning um, later uh, so that I can do emails and stuff. Uh, but I am going to be at my mother-in-law's house for about a week and a half or so. So. I don't know how well that's going to work out, so I'm going to do my best, but I just want to give everyone a heads up uh, that it could be slightly delayed, uh, but I do plan on having them out on time, and um, any, in any event, I hope you all have a good week, and um, I'll see you later. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.